Hello, and welcome back to the Queer Jetta podcast. I am like recording so many episodes in a row. And so I am never as aware of my breathing or like my how much spit is in my mouth until I'm recording. And then I'm like, oh my God. And it's really stressful. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast, that's definitely something to watch out for that nobody warned me about is just how aware you become of normal body functions. Um, anyways, today we are going to be talking about queer custody cases. And this is something that I had talked about on my TikTok a little bit. Um, but again, I only had three minutes, so I didn't really get to go into as much detail as I wanted to. And I had recorded this, I recorded a, like a different version of this before. And then I was like too scatterbrained. So I was like, let me record it again. And then I don't know. I don't know which version you're going to hear. So we'll find out. But so when I am talking about all my notes that I have pulled up here, um, all of my information is coming from the Journal of Social Science um, published by the Oxford University Press in 2010. Um, and this specific chapter is called In the Best Interests of the Child, Lesbian and Gay Parenting Custody Cases from 1967 to 1985. Obviously, those dates are, um, I don't want to say tentative because I don't think that's the correct definition of tentative, but they are kind of really weak parameters because I think that these things probably go back earlier and they probably stretch much further. We just don't have documented reports of them. Um, so let's just get right into it. So right off the bat, the majority of cases that happened from 1967 to 1985 involved queer parents who had left heterosexual marriages. So often queer fathers wanted visitation rights and queer mothers wanted either visitation or full custody. However, they often lost both. Um, when they could see their children, they were not allowed to have their partners around their children and could not participate in queer activism or social events. Um, the reason as to why these children were taken included many stigma around queer people. Um, and I do want to give a, like a big trigger warning right before I start this episode, like really get into it, um, is a lot of the reasons that queer kids were, or not, excuse me, queer parents lost custody of their kids was based on, um, incorrect stereotypes about queer people um, and when it comes to sexual abuse. So I will be talking about that. Um, nothing in depth or graphic, um, but I just did want to give a disclaimer before I dive in. So if that's something that triggers you, you don't have to listen to this episode. I won't take it personally. <laughs> so the reason as to why these children were taken um, were a lot of different reasons, but a, a lot of the main ones were that people thought that queer people were pedophiles um, and therefore unfit to be around children, um, that they were emotionally irresponsible, that their child could grow up to be gay, which like, out of all of those options, that's like the least harmful. Um, and another one was that these children could potentially face social stigma, face social stigma, I need to stop like slurring my words, from being raised by a queer parent which could result in the psychological damage of the child. Um, so due to privacy laws, child privacy laws, and the protection of homophobic judges, many of these custody cases went unpublished. They were only published in local newspapers when the ruling was appealed. So that's why I said earlier, like that's why I think it probably goes back much earlier and probably lasts a lot longer. Um, I'm trying to like figure out where I am in my notes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Sorry about that. I Again, I'm a one woman team, so I'm still trying to figure it out. But so we start off with um, the first like reported, documented a case of a queer parent losing custody of their child is Ellen Nadler. 
So Ellen Nadler lost custody of her five-year-old daughter on October 5th, 1967, on the sole account of her lesbianism. That was the only reason they listed for her losing custody of her child. She went before the Honorable Justice Joseph Babich in the Superior Court of California, Sacramento County. County excuse me. The judge awarded custody to Nadler's ex-husband without hearing any other statements and said, quote, this is a real quote from the court proceedings. The homosexuality of the plaintiff as a matter of law constitutes her not a fit or proper person to have the care, custody, and control of the minor child of the parties here too. So she had lost her custody of her five-year-old on the sole account of her lesbianism, nothing else. So Judge Babich's ruling was quickly overturned by a California Court of Appeals, which objected to the idea that homosexuality made someone unfit to be a parent. However, Nadler lost custody of her child again, with Judge Babich stating that a heterosexual environment was, quote, in the best interest of the child. And I think that we see that phrasing a lot, especially now when we talk about when conservatives talk about, well, we're protecting kids from drag queens, we're protecting kids from queer people. From what specifically? There's no, like, I could go on and on about this. Like, it's, you want, you keep saying you want to protect kids, but you're letting kids die in schools. I don't understand. I never will. Whatever. So when we get down into the history of this phrasing, best interest of the child, the best interest of the child was often a smokescreen for anti-queer biases and a denial of child custody. So working in the best interest of the child is rooted in a Victorian era concept of motherhood and childhood, which led to the development of a maternal preference when courts decide issues of child custody. This glorification of motherhood had certain built-in restrictions based on class and race. And I think that we definitely still see that because we shame parents for being on WIC or SNAP benefits. But if they, because then they're like, oh, well, you need to work. You need to earn these things for your child. And you had a kid. You should like, you shouldn't have had a kid if you weren't ready, whatever. But then if they do work, it's why aren't you with your kid? Why are you paying for daycare? All of this stuff. Like there's no one way to be a parent. I think as long as you're good, that's the best thing that we can ask of somebody because there's no such thing as a perfect parent. You're just doing the best that you can. Um, what was I talking about? Oh yeah. So glorification of motherhood certain restrictions based on class and race. So essentially the idea of a perfect and virtuous mother only applied to a white middle-class woman of European ancestry. And this idea um, was thought to be very feminist at the time because it replaced the idea that children were their father's property and he therefore owned them. So then we went from children are only their father's property to, hey, maybe they might be people and maybe... Their mom might actually be important in this whole thing. Wild, wild thought, guys. Um, So that's pretty much where we're getting the impetus for this all, is that there's certain restrictions based on class and race and heterosexuality. Like, they think that this is the way things have gone. This is the only way for things to go. So... Assistant DA Ernest F. Winters referred to California's sodomy law when he demanded Ellen Nadler release the names of her female sexual partner since 1966. So he, his reasoning for this, and I don't have the exact wording down here, but it was basically that um, if she was a parent and she was queer and she had engaged in these sexual relationships with other women, 
the likelihood that they also had children was very high. And so he wanted those names. Um, and so there was a big case that happened and eventually she was forced to release the names, um, which I mean, just awful because not only have you lost your child and your family is like trying to scramble to pick up these pieces. Now you've lost your community because nobody feels safe. Just, just all around sucks. And it's going to keep, we're going to have to stay on this train for a hot second. So we have a lot of these cases that are popping up around the country as this is happening. And as these cases are happening, queer parent groups are also being formed across the country, um, including politically active groups such as Dykes and Tykes in New York City, the Lesbian Mothers Union in Oakland, California, and the Lesbian Mothers National Defense Fund in Seattle, Washington. So after Ellen Nadler's uh, case, we have uh, a New Jersey court denying Sandra Panzino custody of her two daughters in 1977 on the grounds that her children could potentially be stigmatized by having a lesbian mother. Judge Joseph Gruscio claimed that Panzino was, quote, too dependent on her daughters, which I tried to look into more of that, like what he meant by that, and I couldn't find anything. So I, I had no idea what that meant. Um, and then in 1976, a Texas jury denied Mary Jo Risher custody of her five-year-old son um, in, in a trial in which her 15-year-old son testified that he had suffered bullying as a result of his mother's lesbianism. And um, I'm definitely not discounting that that could have been a possibility, but I do know that um, there was a possibility raised in this book that his father had coached him to say that so that he would get custody. Um, I don't know how true that is. Um, so take that for what you will. Um, so supervised visits were common in these cases because judges often believed that queer parents were more likely to molest their children. Um, so for example, Robert Johnson was accused by his ex-wife of molesting her son after he came out to her in 1983. She had no other concerns before he came out, but after he came out, it became, um, something that was brought up. Um, so that came out in 1983 as a part of their custody battle that focused on quote, the sickness of homosexuality, a petition filed in 1982 on part of a gay man's ex-wife in DeKalb County, Illinois, alleged that the man was, quote, recruiting the children into homosexuality and that he was likely to molest them. A county examination found that the man's relationship with his children was not abusive. Um, the reason I laughed right there was because just the idea of recruiting children into homosexuality, I think of like those ROTC people who used to come to high school and be like, if you do 15 push-ups, you can get this t-shirt. Or not push-ups, it was pull-ups. It depended on who was there. They were like, you can do um, this, and then you can get a shirt. And then, like, here's a gun. Go fight for the country. Good luck. Um, that's what that gives. But, like, that's not what happens. Um, so as this is all happening, um, obviously, queer mothers were at a disadvantage because they were women. But also queer mothers of color went through a lot of invisible struggles because they were not centered in the conversation. Because if we go back to that definition of the best interest of the child, a white middle-class woman of European descent was seen as a virtuous and perfect mother. So Ernestine Blue, a black lesbian mother who fled California for Utah in the 1970s, um, she said that she did that because she was worried she would lose custody of her children to their father. So she literally like picked up her life and left. Um, in one Arizona custody case, attorneys suggested that the interracial relationship of a white lesbian mother would harm her children. And then in a Virginia case, the quote, looseness of a lesbian mother's household was argued based on her lesbianism, the fact that she let her son curse, and that her partner's son was black. 
just so many things happening right there. Like, I don't even know where to begin. Like, it's just, it's racist. It's homophobic. It's just, like, shitty reasoning. Like, if if my parents lost custody of me because I was cursing in high school, like, hello? I Like, teenagers curse. They do that. Kids curse. Like, children. Like, it, it's, it's not a big deal. Like, just shut the fuck out. Um, it's really fun being a queer historian because you get to yell at people in history who can't hear you, um, and don't care about your opinion. So if you're looking into that, it's super fun. So in many of these cases, queer parents were forced to sign affidavits agreeing never to have their partners and their children in the same house at the same time. Um, they had to sign to agree to undergo regular psychiatric examinations, testifying to basically how they were trying to repress their sexual orientation. And they had to halt all pro-gay activist work um, in order to maintain parental rights. So they had to meet like X, Y, and Z if you want to keep your kid, or at least like rights to your child. So the changes in the way uh, courts ruled in custodial cases happened when homosexuality was removed from the American, American, from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1973. I think this was like December of 1973, so it was later in that, um, but it's also just wild to me to think that like my dad was alive when homosexuality was still seen as a mental disorder. Um, wild. So once that happened, um, queer parents were beginning to win custody of their children due to the work of several sympathetic psychologists, such as Dr. Evelyn Hooker, Dr. Richard Green, Dr. John Money, which is a baller name, um, and Dr. Wardle Pomroy. I think that's how you say his name. It's spelled P-O-M-E-R-O-Y. Pomroy? Pomroy? I'm not sure. Um, but basically, due to their work and due to the work of community activists and sympathetic attorneys, by the late 1970s and early 1980s, queer parents were beginning to win custody of their children. However, there were still anti-gay rulings. Um, in 1985, for example, the Virginia Supreme Court denied a gay man both custody of his 10-year-old daughter and any visitation in the presence of another gay man. So if he had happened to enter into another relationship with a man, um, she could never meet that other, that partner um, while she was still a minor. So, and she was 10 at the time. So she would have been, it would have been 10 more years before that would have gone away, which just sucks. Did I say 10 more years? I meant eight more years. Sometimes math is hard. Um, in 1991, the Illinois second district court of appeals upheld a family court ruling that denied a lesbian mother custody of her daughter because she was quote, living with another woman. Like there's just some, Anyways, <laughs> the first time the Supreme Court had even acknowledged the struggles that queer parents went through was when Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed to the Supreme Court in 1981. Still, in the same year, the Kentucky Court of Appeals transferred custody of a lesbian mother's five-year-old daughter to her father because of the threat of the mother's sexuality. And the Supreme Court refused to hear this case. This is 1981. So... I couldn't find a lot about the aftermath of these cases, like outside of this book, um, probably due to child privacy laws and just parents not wanting to talk about it more than they have to, which I totally get. Um, but later studies of children affected by these court decisions cited distress due to their parents' separation, but not due to their parents' sexual preference, and that there was little difference between children raised by heterosexual parents 
and children raised by queer parents. So there you have it. There was, what did they say? Little difference between children raised by heterosexual parents and children raised by queer parents. So all those things that they were worried about didn't happen. And it was just them being a fucking asshole. So queer history is fun. Um, So in the... So in 1986, um, there was the Supreme Court ruling Bowers v. Hardwick, which upheld Georgia's anti-sodomy law. And this anti-sodomy law would not be overturned until the 2000... Oh my God, can I talk? Sorry. It was overturned in the 2003 reversal in Lawrence v. Texas. So like 20 years it's been since Lawrence v. Texas happened. And there's obviously still a lot of discourse about queer parents and the way that queer people interact with children, Um, especially now with like the drag bills that are happening and things like that, where it's, we don't want queer people to exist in front of our children, which is wild because queer people have always existed in front of children and like the world hasn't ended. You know what I mean? Like, Children have only benefited, I believe, from seeing different relationships and seeing different family dynamics and things like that. Like, my godchildren have, like, probably, like, stacks at this point of, like, queer books of, like, Donovan's Big Day and, uh, oh, Tango Makes Three, like, the gay penguin book. So, like, There are a lot of different ways to be a parent. There are a lot of different ways to be a figure in a child's life. There's no way you're going to be perfect. You can try and try and try and lose sleep over it, but you're not going to be perfect. I think that the best thing that we can ask of parents and people who help raise and interact with children is to just be good, to do their best to be good. I think that's the only thing that we can ask of people, Um, of anyone really, not just parents. But there is so much pressure when you do have a child. I'm not a parent, but like, this is just like all of what I imagine. I have friends who are parents. Um, Friend, one friend (laughs) who's a parent. Um, I think there are so many different ways to raise a child. And as long as you are doing your absolute best by them for you, Whatever that may look like, if that looks like screen time for them, rock and roll, that looks like Montessori play, cool. I think that as long as you're just raising kids to not be fucking assholes, like, cool, great, rock on. Like, I I think that we just place a lot of pressure on parents when there's enough pressure already. You just bought a, you, you bought, you brought a new human into this world and now you're like taking care of it. And there's no guidebook for how to do that. So it's like, leave them alone. Um, But so the reason I wanted to talk about this today was because today is March 4th, um, which is kind of fun. That's a fun day, March 4th. It's like May the 4th, but like March. (laughs) I shouldn't have a podcast, dude. Like sometimes I say things and then I hear them and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm like, eight weeks away from earning a degree in English. And I just said, March 4th, that's cool. It's like May May the 4th, but March, huh? Anyways, <laughs> this is why we need notes, people. Anyways, so this is coming directly from today, the Today Show, um, on 
February 16th, 2023. This headline reads, Lesbian mom in Oklahoma loses parental rights of child to sperm donor and her estranged wife. So I kind of read through the article. So the general gist of this is that these two women um, were looking to have a baby together. They entered into a known sperm donor agreement with this man. Um, and they got married later that year in 2021 and then had the baby. I believe the baby was born in August. So this mother, what is her name? Chris Williams is on her son's birth certificate. And she, what else did it say? On the birth certificate and has her last name. Um, and because her and her wife have separated and she didn't adopt the child legally, she has no parental rights. That's what it says. Um, yeah, so Oklahoma County District Judge Lynn McGuire wrote in her decision that because Williams did not adopt the child prior to the couple's separation, she has no parental rights, which just blows my mind because we hear so many stories of dads um, who will sign the birth certificate, put their name on it, and then never show up again. And then they still have some form of right to their child. But when it's queer parents, we have to jump through these extra hurdles to show like, no, this child is wanted and it's loved um, and has two parents. Even though I may not have given birth to this child, like I'm still their parent. Um, I just think... I don't know. It just makes me so sad because I, I follow a lot of lesbian moms on TikTok and things like that. And they talk a lot about having to go through the adoption process um, for the other parent, like unless something happens. Um, and it's just so scary to think like those things could go wrong so fast. And we see that in these cases from history. Um, and especially now with conservatives want to suddenly have so many opinions about how to protect children when children have been dying in schools for decades and haven't done shit about it. Um, now all of a sudden it's drag queens are evil and we shouldn't have drag queen story hour and queer people shouldn't, queer and trans people shouldn't be allowed to exist in front of my child because what if they indoctrinate them? And that was the same thing that this woman was saying in what year was it when she said they were recruiting into the cult of homosexuality or whatever it was, recruiting... Recruiting the children into homosexuality in 1982. Like, that word for word, like, pretty much exactly what conservatives are arguing today was this argument in 1982. So not only is it unoriginal and tired, it's just fucking stupid. I have a lot of feelings, obviously, about this. But I think that it's important that we know the origins of this term, the best interest of the child. Because obviously everybody wants to say that of, like, well, I'm just working in the best interest of this. Because nobody's going to argue you on wanting to protect children. Obviously, everybody wants to do that. But it's one thing to say that you want to protect children when you're forcing people to give birth to children that will not be born into safe environments when the welfare system is so fucked up, when the um, foster care system is so fucked up. Like, there are already so many kids here who are alive who need help and protection that you're not protecting, but you're focusing on somebody else's parenting and somebody else's choices over their body um, but you're not focusing on the kids who are here. And then the kids who are here, you send them to school and schools aren't equipped to handle that many kids. The curriculum is not updated. These teachers are overworked and tired and not paid enough. And then it's not safe because the leading cause of death in children in the United States is firearms. So there's just... I think it's really rich when they're like, well, we're doing all this. We're protecting children from 
queer people because it's in their best interest. It's like if you really cared about the best interest of children, you would do all of these other things and queer people would be the last people on your fucking list, dude. Ugh. Sorry, that was, oh my God, I need to watch my levels. I am very loud. I just have a lot of feelings about this, obviously. Um, I was a nanny for like two years. Um, and before that I was an education major um, and I worked with kids and I helped to raise kids. Um, and there are a lot of, like kids in my life that I love and I think about very often um, because I I want them to have great lives and I miss them and, you know, all these things. But I think that for somebody to look at that relationship and to think of it as something sinful and something that needs to be eradicated just like hurts my heart because I have so much love to give um, and that's seen as like a bad thing. And it's not like I'm I'm talking to kids about queer history. Like there is a certain level that can be done with that. And I do have, my godchildren have books like I talked about earlier, but it's not like I'm, I'm reading them Gender Trouble by Judith Butler. Like they're four. Like I'm not, it's again, it's, it goes back to the thing of like, it's, it's okay to not be perfect, but you need to do your best to be good. And I think that's what I'm trying to do by the children in my life. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It just, it really sucks. And I hope that that case ends up going well for that mother in Oklahoma. And I hope that queer parents everywhere are taking care of their mental health um, to take care of their children in a way that's helpful and um, safe. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot. I have a lot of feelings about it. And I feel bad, like, I, this episode is kind of a downer because I don't know, there's just so much going on and I don't know. Let me think of something good that's happened this week. Oh, I haven't even talked about like, um, campus pride. So campus pride, the reason I am even like able to pursue, um, this podcast route is because I was very fortunate to be chosen as a winner of a mini grant through campus pride, um, which is a pride organization for college students um, and college organizations across the United States, and they're great. So thank you to Campus Pride for being able to allow me to have this opportunity and educate people. So that's something that's really good that happened. Um, hopefully when this comes out, my TED Talk will be uploaded to YouTube. And so you can, I'll link that in the link tree for Queer Agenda once that comes out. I'm sure I'll post it everywhere and scream about it from the rooftops. And then what else has happened this week? Oh, my dogs got groomed. They went to the groomer and now they kind of look like a rat. Um, but that's okay. So we have two dogs, um, Bowie and Zeus, and they are the official mascots of Queer Agenda. Um, and they're gay. Again, sometimes I say things and then I'm like, hey, what are we talking about? Um, yeah, so they're gay. They have these gay ass names, Bowie and Zeus already, which they came with those names. We didn't name them. Um, we got them from the shelter and they had those names. Um, and they love each other. They're so cute. They're like, um, Zeus is four and Bowie is either two or three now. And they had two separate kennels because they're little, they're little guys. They're like crusty white dogs, like those little crusty white dogs that everybody talks about on Twitter. Um, and they had two separate kennels and then they got sad. And so now they have to sleep in the same kennel because otherwise they get sad and they love each other. Um, and Zussi has, um, a little like collar that says love is love and it has a rainbow heart on it because we adopted him during pride month of 2020, um, at the beginning of the pandemic. So he was a pandemic puppy. And, um, he also has a cape 
that he wears when he goes to Pride. Bowie doesn't have any Pride stuff, but um, his name is Bowie. Like, that's already gay as hell. I'm so sorry to whoever named Bowie. Um, love ya. He's got... Um, but yeah, we'll probably get him some pride stuff and take him to some pride events this year. I'm sure that he'll love it. So that's, I wanted to end it on like a little bit of a happier note because I kind of went on a, uh, a rant and a tangent about just how awful the world can be. So yeah, <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, I never know how to end these. So I always just like feel silly. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tag me, um, on Instagram at the queer agenda 15. Um, you can also rate us on Spotify. I believe that's a thing that you can do. I don't know. I haven't been pushing it in the past couple of episodes. Again, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, follow us on Instagram, the queer agenda 15, follow us on TikTok at the same handle. Um, what else do I have to promote for you guys? I don't think anything. Um, Yeah. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned some stuff and, um, I hope that you have some good arguments to throw back in conservatives faces. So, um, yeah, thank you for listening. I'll hopefully have another episode out for you guys next week. I'm like pre-recording all of these, but again, like, I don't know how many, I don't know what I'm doing. It's like the short and thick of it. Is that how you say, is that what it is? Did I say that at the beginning of this episode? I don't know. I'm an English major. I really should know these things. Anyways, bye.